Chapter Two of A Sportsman's Sketches. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tavarish. A Sportsman's Sketches by Ivan Turgenev. Translated by Constance Garnett. Yermolai and the Miller's Wife. One evening I went with the huntsman Yermolai stand shooting. Uh, but perhaps all my readers may not know what stand shooting is. I will tell you. A quarter of an hour before sunset in springtime, you go out into the woods with your gun, but without your dog. You seek out a spot for yourself on the outskirts of the forest, take a look round, examine your caps, and glance at your companion. A quarter of an hour passes, the sun has set, but it is still light in the forest. The sky is clear and transparent, the birds are chattering and twittering, the young grass shines with the brilliance of emerald. You wait. Gradually the recesses of the forest grow dark, the blood-red glow of the evening sky creeps slowly on to the roots and the trunks of the trees, and keeps rising higher and higher passes from the lower, still almost leafless branches to the motionless slumbering treetops. And now even the topmost branches are darkened, the purple sky fades to dark blue. The forest fragrance grows stronger, there is a scent of warmth and damp earth, the fluttering breeze dies away at your side. The birds go to sleep, not all at once, but after their kinds. First the finches are hushed, a few minutes later the warblers, and after them the yellow buntings. In the forest it grows darker and darker, the trees melt together into great masses of blackness, in the dark blue sky the first stars come timidly out. All the birds are asleep, only the red starts and the nuthatches are still chirping drowsily. And now they too are still. The last echoing call of the peewit rings over our heads the oriole's melancholy cry sounds somewhere in the distance then the nightingale's first note your heart is weary with suspense when suddenly but only sportsmen can understand me suddenly in the deep hush there is a peculiar croaking and whirring sound the measured sweep of swift wings is heard and the snipe gracefully bending its long beak, sails smoothly down behind a dark bush to meet your shot. That is the meaning of stand-shooting. And so I had gone out stand-shooting with Yermolai. But excuse me, reader, I must first introduce you to Yermolai. Picture to yourself a tall, gaunt man of forty-five, with a long, thin nose and narrow forehead, little grey eyes, a bristling head of hair, and thick sarcastic lips. This man wore, winter and summer alike, a yellow nanking coat of German cut, but with a sash round the waist. He wore blue pantaloons and a cap of Astrakhan, presented to him in a merry hour by a spinthrift landowner. Two bags were fastened on to his sash, one in front skilfully tied into two halves, for powder and for shot, the other behind for game. Wadding Yermolai used to produce out of his peculiar, seemingly inexhaustible cap. With the money he gained by the game he sold, he might easily have bought himself a cartridge box 
and powder flask but he never once even contemplated such a purchase and continued to load his gun after his old fashion exciting the admiration of all beholders by the skill with which he avoided the risks of spilling or mixing his powder and shot his gun was a single-barreled flintlock endowed moreover with a villainous habit of kicking it was due to this that yermolai's right cheek was permanently swollen to a larger size than the left how he ever succeeded in hitting anything with his gun it would take a shrewd man to discover but he did he had too a setter dog by name valetka a most extraordinary creature yermolai never fed him me feed a dog he reasoned why a dog's a clever beast he finds a living for himself and certainly though valetka's extreme thinness was a shock even to an indifferent observer he still lived and had a long life and in spite of his pitiable position he was not even once lost or never showed an inclination to desert his master once indeed in his youth he had absented himself for two days on courting bent but this folly was soon over with him valetka's most noticeable peculiarity was his impenetrable indifference to everything in the world if it were not a dog i was speaking of i should have called him disillusioned he usually sat with his cropped tail curled up under him scowling and twitching at times and he never smiled it is well known that dogs can smile and smile very sweetly he was exceedingly ugly and the idle house serfs never lost an opportunity of jeering cruelly at his appearance but all these jeers and even blows valetka bore with astonishing indifference he was a source of special delight to the cooks who would all leave their work at once and give him chase with shouts and abuse whenever through a weakness not confined to dogs he thrust his hungry nose through the half-open door of the kitchen tempting with its warmth and appetizing smells he distinguished himself by untiring energy in the chase and had a good scent but if he chanced to overtake a slightly wounded hare he devoured it with relish to the last bone somewhere in the cool shade under the green bushes at a respectful distance from yermolai who was abusing him in every known and unknown dialect yermolai belonged to one of my neighbors a landowner of the old style landowners of the old style don't care for game and prefer the domestic fowl only on extraordinary occasions such as birthdays name days and elections the cooks of the old-fashioned landowners set to work to prepare some long-beaked birds and falling into the state of frenzy peculiar to russians when they don't quite know what to do they concoct such marvellous sauces for them that the guests examine the proffered dishes curiously and attentively but rarely make up their minds to try them yermolai was under orders to provide his master's kitchen with two brace of grouse and partridges once a month but he might live where and how he pleased they had given him up as a man of no use for work of any kind bone lazy as the expression is among us in a row powder and shot of course they did not provide him following precisely the same principle in virtue of which he did not feed his dog yermolai was a very strange kind of man heedless as a bird rather fond of talking awkward and vacant looking he was excessively fond of drink and never could sit still long 
in walking he shambled along and rolled from side to side and yet he got over fifty miles in the day with his rolling shambling gait he exposed himself to the most varied adventures spent the night in the marshes in trees on roofs or under bridges more than once he had got shot up in loft cellars or barns he sometimes lost his gun his dog his most indispensable garments got long and severe thrashings but he always returned home after a little while in his clothes and with his gun and his dog one could not call him a cheerful man though one almost always found him in an even frame of mind he was looked on generally as an eccentric yermolai liked a little chat with a good companion especially over a glass but he would not stop long he would get up and go but where the devil are you going it's dark out of doors to chapliner but what's taking you to chapliner ten miles away i'm going to stay the night at sofron's there but stay the night here no i can't and yermolai with his valetka would go off into the dark night through woods and watercourses and the peasant sofron very likely did not let him into his place and even i'm afraid gave him a blow to teach him not to disturb honest folks but none could compare with yermolai in skill in deep-water fishing in springtime in catching crayfish with his hands in tracking game by scent in snaring quails in training hawks in capturing the nightingales who had the greatest variety of notes one thing he could not do train a dog he had not patience enough he had a wife too he went to see her once a week she lived in a wretched tumble-down little hut and led a hand-to-mouth existence never knowing overnight whether she would have food to eat on the morrow and in every way her lot was a pitiful one yermolai who seemed such a careless and easy-going fellow treated his wife with cruel harshness in his own house he assumed a stern and menacing manner and his poor wife did everything she could to please him trembled when he looked at her and spent her last farthing to buy him vodka and when he stretched himself majestically on the stove and fell into a heroic sleep she obsequiously covered him with a sheepskin i happened myself more than once to catch an involuntary look in him of a kind of savage ferocity i did not like the expression of his face when he finished off a wounded bird with his teeth but yermolai never remained more than a day at home and away from home he was once more the same yermolka that is the shooting cap as he was called for a hundred miles round and as he sometimes called himself the lowest house serf was conscious of being superior to this vagabond and perhaps this was precisely why they treated him with friendliness the peasants at first amused themselves by chasing him and driving him like a hare over the open country but afterwards they left him in god's hands and when once they recognized him as queer they no longer tormented him and then gave him bread and entered into talk with him this was the man i took as my huntsman and with him i went stand shooting to a great birch wood on the banks of the ista many russian rivers like the volga have one bank rugged and precipitous the other bounded by level meadows and so it is with the Ista. This small river winds extremely capriciously, coils like a snake, 
and does not keep a straight course for half a mile together in some places from the top of a sharp declivity one can see the river for ten miles with its dikes its pools and meals and the gardens on its banks shut in with willows and thick flower gardens there are fish in the ista in endless numbers especially roaches the peasants take them in hot weather from under the bushes with their hands little sandpipers flutter whistling along the stony banks which are streaked with cold clear streams wild ducks dive in the middle of the pools and look round wearily in the coves under the overhanging cliffs herons stand out in the shade we stood in ambush nearly an hour killed two brace of wood snipe and as we wanted to try our luck again at sunrise stand shooting can be done as well in early morning we resolved to spend the night at the nearest mill we came out of the wood and went down the slope the dark blue waters of the river ran below the air was thick with the mists of night we knocked at the gate the dogs began barking in the yard who is there asked a hoarse and sleepy voice uh, we are sportsmen let us stay the night there was no reply we will pay i will go and tell the master Shh! curse the dogs go to the devil with you we listened as the workman went into the cottage he soon came back to the gate no he said the master tells me not to let you in why not he's afraid you're a sportsman you might set the mill on fire you've firearms with you to be sure <laughs> but what nonsense we had our mill on fire like that last year some fish dealers stayed the night and they managed to set it on fire somehow <laughs> but my good friend we can't sleep in the open air that's your business he went away his boots clacking as he walked yermolai promised him various unpleasant things in the future let us go to the village he brought out at last with a sigh but it was two miles to the village let us stay the night here i said in the open air the night is warm the miller will let us have some straw if we pay for it yermolai agreed without discussion we began again to knock well what do you want the workman's voice was heard again i have told you we can't we explained to him what we wanted he went to consult the master of the house and returned with him the little side gate creaked the miller appeared a tall fat-faced man with a bull neck round-bellied and corpulent a hundred paces from the mill there was a little outhouse open to the air on all sides they carried straw and hay there for us the workman set a samovar down on the grass near the river and squatting on his heels began to blow vigorously into the pipe of it the embers glowed and threw a bright light on his young face the miller ran to wake his wife and suggested at last that i myself should sleep in the cottage but i preferred to remain in the open air the miller's wife brought us milk eggs potatoes and bread soon the samovar boiled and we began drinking tea a mist had risen from the river there was no wind from all round came the cry of the corncrake and faint sounds from the mill wheels of drops that dripped from the paddles and of water gurgling through the bars of the lock we built a small fire on the ground while yermolai was baking the potatoes in the embers i had time to fall into a doze i was waked by a discreetly subdued whispering near me i lifted my head 
Before the fire, on a tub turned upside down, the miller's wife sat talking to my huntsman. By her dress, her movements, and her manner of speaking, I had already recognized that she had been in domestic service and was neither peasant nor city-bred. But now, for the first time, I got a clear view of her features. She looked about thirty. Her thin, pale face still showed the traces of remarkable beauty. What particularly charmed me was her eyes, large and mournful in expression. She was leaning her elbows on her knees and had her face in her hands. Yermolai was sitting with his back to me and thrusting sticks into the fire. They've the cattle plague again at Zoltonhine, the miller's wife was saying. Father Ivan's two cows are dead. Lord have mercy on them. And how are your pigs doing? asked Yermolai after a brief pause. They're alive. You ought to make me a present of a suckling pig. The miller's wife was silent for a while, then she sighed. Who is it you're with? she asked. A gentleman from Kostomarova. Yermolai threw a few pine twigs on the fire. They all caught fire at once, and a thick white smoke came puffing into his face. Why didn't your husband let us into the cottage? He's afraid. Afraid, the fat old tub. Arina Timofeyevna, my darling, bring me a little glass of spirits. The miller's wife rose and vanished into the darkness. Yermolai began to sing in an undertone. When I went to see my sweetheart, I wore out all my shoes. Arina returned with a small flask and a glass. Yermolai got up, crossed himself, and drank it off at a draught. Good, was his comment. The miller's wife sat down again on the tub. Well, Arina Timofeyevna, are you still ill? Yes. What is it? My cough troubles me at night. The gentleman asleep, it seems, observed Yermolai after a short silence. Don't go to a doctor, Arina. It will be worse if you do. Well, I'm not going. But come and pay me a visit. Arina hung down her head dejectedly. I will drive my wife out for the occasion, continued Yermolai. Upon my word, I will. You had better wake the gentleman, Yermolai Petrovitch. You see, the potatoes are done. Ah, uh, let him snore, observed my faithful servant indifferently. He is tired with walking, so he sleeps sound. I turned over in the hay. Yermolai got up and came to me. The potatoes are ready. Will you come and eat them? I came out of the outhouse. The miller's wife got up from the tub and was going away. I addressed her. Have you kept this mill long? It's two years since I came on Trinity Day. And where does your husband come from? Arina had not caught my question. Where is your husband from? repeated Yermolai, raising his voice. Uh, from Belov. He is a Belov townsman. And are you too from Belov? No, I am a serf. I was a serf. Whose? Zverkov was my master. Now I am free. Uh, what Zverkov? Alexander Selich. Weren't you his wife's lady-maid? Uh, How do you know? Yes. I looked at Arina with redoubled curiosity and sympathy. I know your master, I continued. Do you? She replied in a low voice, and her head drooped. I must tell the reader why I looked with such sympathy at Arina. 
During my stay at Petersburg I had become by chance acquainted with Mr. Zverkov. He had a rather influential position and was reputed a man of sense and education. He had a wife, fat, sentimental, lacrimose and spiteful, a vulgar and disagreeable creature. He had, too, a son, the very type of the young swell of today, pampered and stupid. The exterior of Mr. Zverkov himself did not prepossess one in his favor. His little mouse-like eyes peeped slyly out of a broad, almost square face. He had a large, prominent nose with distended nostrils. His close-cropped gray hair stood up like a brush above his scowling brow. His thin lips were forever twitching and smiling mawkishly. Mr. Zverkov's favorite position was standing with his legs wide apart and his fat hands in his trouser pockets. Once I happened somehow to be driving alone with Mr. Zverkov in a coach, out of town. We fell into a conversation. As a man of experience and of judgment, Mr. Zverkov began to try to set me in the path of truth. Allow me to observe to you, he drawled at last, all you young people criticize and form judgments on everything at random. You have little knowledge of your own country. Russia, young gentleman, is an unknown land to you. That's where it is. You are forever reading German. For instance, now you say this and that and the other about anything. For instance, about the house serfs. Very fine. I don't dispute it's all very fine, but you don't know them. You don't know the kind of people they are. Mr. Zverkov blew his nose loudly and took a pinch of snuff. Allow me to tell you, as an illustration, one little anecdote. It may perhaps interest you. Mr. Zverkov cleared his throat. You know, doubtless, what my wife is. It would be difficult, I should imagine, to find a more kind-hearted woman, you will agree. For her waiting-maid's existence is simply a perfect paradise, and no mistake about it. But my wife has made it a rule never to keep married ladies' maids. Certainly it would not do. Children come in one thing and the other, and how is a lady's maid to look after her mistress as she ought, to fit in with her ways? She is no longer able to do it. Her mind is in other things. One must look at things through human nature. Well, we were driving once through our village. It must be, uh, let me be correct, yes, uh, fifteen years ago. We saw at the bailiff's a young girl, his daughter, very pretty indeed, something even, you know, something attractive in her manners. And my wife said to me, Coco, you understand, of course, that is her pet name for me, let us take this girl to Petersburg. I like her, Coco. I said, let us take her, by all means. The bailiff, of course, was at our feet. He could not have expected such good fortune, you can imagine. Well, the girl, of course, cried violently. Of course, it was hard for her at first. The parental home, in fact, there was nothing surprising in that. However, she soon got used to us. At first we put her in the maid-servant's room, they trained her, of course, and what do you think? The girl made wonderful progress. My wife became simply devoted to her, promoted her at last above the rest to wait on herself. Observe, 
and one must do her the justice to say my wife had never such a maid absolutely never attentive modest and obedient simply all that could be desired but my wife i must confess spoiled her too much she dressed her well fed her from our own table gave her tea to drink and so on as you can imagine so she waited on my wife like this for ten years suddenly one fine morning picture to yourself arina her name was arina rushes unannounced into my study and flops down at my feet that's a thing i tell you plainly i can't endure no human being ought ever to lose sight of their personal dignity i'm not right what do you say your honour alexander selich i beseech a favour of you what favour let me be married i must confess i was taken aback but do you know you stupid your mistress has no other lady's maid i will wait on mistress as before nonsense nonsense your mistress can't endure married ladies maids malanya could take my place pray don't argue i obey your will i must confess it was quite a shock i assure you i'm like that nothing wounds me so nothing i venture to say wounds me so deeply as ingratitude i need not tell you you know that my wife is an angel upon earth goodness inexhaustible one would fancy even the worst of men would be ashamed to hurt her well i got rid of arina i thought perhaps she would come to her senses i was unwilling do you know to believe in wicked black ingratitude in any one what do you think within six months she thought fit to come to me again with the same request i felt revolted but imagine my amazement when some time later my wife comes to me in tears so agitated that i felt positively alarmed what has happened arina you understand i am ashamed to tell impossible who is the man petrushka the footman my indignation broke out then i am like that i don't like half measures petrushka was not to blame we might flog him but in my opinion he was not to blame arina well 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 what was to be said i gave orders of course that her hair should be cut off she should be dressed in sackcloth and sent into the country my wife was deprived of an excellent lady's maid but there was no help for it immorality cannot be tolerated in a household in any case better to cut off the infected member at once there there now you can judge the thing for yourself you know that my wife is yes 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 indeed an angel she had grown attached to arina and arina knew it and had the face to eh no tell me eh and what's the use of talking about it anyway there was no help for it i indeed i in particular felt hurt felt wounded for a long time by the ingratitude of this girl whatever you say it's no good to look for feeling for heart in these people you may feed the wolf as you will he has always a hankering for the woods education by all means but i only wanted to give you an example
and Mr. Zverkov, without finishing his sentence, turned away his head, and wrapping himself more closely into his cloak, manfully repressed his involuntary emotion. The reader now probably understands why I looked with sympathetic interest at Arina. "'Have you long been married to the miller?' I asked her at last. Two years.' "'How was it? Did your master allow it?' "'They bought my freedom.' "'Who?' "'Savelia Alexeyevich.' "'Who is that?' "'My husband,' Yermolai smiled to himself. "'Has my master perhaps spoken to you of me?' added Arina after a brief silence. I did not know what reply to make to her question. "'Arina!' cried Emilia from a distance. She got up and walked away. "'Is her husband a good fellow?' I asked Yermolai. So-so. Have they any children? There was one, but it died. How was it? Did the miller take a liking to her? Did he give much to buy her freedom? I don't know. She can read and write. In their business it's of use. I suppose he liked her. And have you known her long? Yes, I used to go to her master's. Their house isn't far from here. And do you know the footman Petrushka? Uh, Pyotr Vasilievich, of course, I knew him. How is he now? He was sent for a soldier. We were silent for a while. She doesn't seem well, I asked Yermolai at last. I should think not. Tomorrow, I say, we shall have a good sport. A little sleep now would do us no harm. A flock of wild ducks swept wheezing over our heads, and we heard them drop down into the river not far from us. It was now quite dark, and it began to be cold. In the thicket sounded the melodious notes of a nightingale. We buried ourselves in the hay and fell asleep. End of Yermolai and the Miller's Wife